May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, what thoughts or questions did you have about those readings as you sat in silence, if any? Any thoughts? Any questions? Well, these are both kind of popular or well-known stories. The first one, Isaiah. Um, it's often used by, uh, well, this passage was actually the name of the youth group that Bonnie and I ran in Fielding, and Bobby and Lindsay's daughter was a big part of that. So that was a long time ago, back when I had hair and uh, was slightly smaller than I am at the moment. A little bit more vigorous and younger. So... Um, and it's often used by people to kind of say, when you're tired, God will give you energy. And athletes like to use it because, you know, there's running shirts you can buy with, about rising up on eagles' wings and then you can win the race. All of which is okay. But in some ways, it's too small an understanding of what that reading is about. We're in danger of almost missing the point. So, what happens when we put it back? What happens when we put that passage back into the time of Second Isaiah. So just to remind you, uh, so David controlled all of the kingdom, so the blue and the gold, and uh, then his son Solomon, who wasn't so wise, uh, controlled the blue and the gold, but he taxed people very heavily for the temple and his grand palaces, and he particularly taxed the northern tribes, so they're the bits in the blue. And when his son came to the throne, the northern tribes said, well, we'll give him a chance, but he just carried on his father's policy, so they went, we're out. And they set up their own kingdom, which is called Israel. So that's the bit on the blue. And Judah was the southern kingdom, with the two tribes loyal to the Davidic line. And that's the golden bit. <coughs> and then around the 740s, the 720s, we have the Assyrians rise up. And they come through, and the first thing they do is destroy Israel. They take Samaria... And, uh, and the next slide will show that they then take uh, many of the people from those northern tribes from the kingdom of Israel and they scatter them throughout their empire and they bring back a whole lot of people from around their empire and they bring them into that area. So there's a lot of intermingling, a lot of intermarrying uh, and the remnant of the ten tribes in the north who lived in Samaria are called the Samaritans. So they, they adhere to the, to the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, but all the other books after that they don't have. So they are the remnant of the ten tribes. So you can see the Assyrians were quite the power. Uh, and then, so that's the time of 1st Isaiah. So 1st Isaiah is writing at the time the Assyrians are coming through, taking over Samaria, and then they come down to Jerusalem, and they nearly take Jerusalem, but then something happens at home and the Assyrians go home. And then kind of there's peace for a little while and you can see the little brown bit at the bottom, that's Judah. That's what's left of the Davidic kingdom. And then, uh, so this little picture just shows that the Assyrians took people away and then the Babylonians come and they take people away and the Assyrians bring people in. So around 620, uh, we have the Babylonian Empire. And they come through and they easily take Jerusalem. 
uh, and they put a puppet kingdom king in place. They take the royal fam, the rest of the fam royal family away. They took a lot of the leaders away, a lot of the artisans away, back to Babylon. Uh, then the puppet king rises up and says, "I don't want to be a vassal king to the king of Babylon." So he is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The city is destroyed, and the people are left in ruins. So. Uh, that's at that point. And then you can see up the top, uh, there's a, a little area called Medes. We would call that Persia or Iran today. So that is the beginning of the Persian Empire. And its, it's kind of presence in the world today is Iran. So they are the Persians. And uh, they rise up and they destroy the Babylonian Empire. So 2nd Isaiah is written around the time, most people think, when the Medes are rising up and are coming through and destroying the Babylonian Empire. So there's a lot of uncertainty. So what was the link between these people? Well, it's thought there were disciples of the 1st Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who kept his teachings alive. And then they would reinterpret those teachings to the new situation. So the new situation was... They were in exile, and now there was the possibility of going home. Except, well, none of them had been to that place. This was an unknown place. They'd heard about it. They knew it from the stories, but they'd been born in Babylon. Babylon was their home. So the idea of going home in some ways appealed, but in a lot of ways did not appeal. Because when they went home, they would be going home to Jerusalem, which was a city in ruins. There's no temple, there's no walls, it's basically a little town built on rubble. So to return from exile meant Returning, I mean, just the, just the hard work of getting there from Babylon back to Judah. And you can kind of see on that map that it's not close. And then there's the hard work of creating a new life in the ruins of a city, in a place where you're not going to be that welcome because people have been living there and they're not going to like all these people coming back. So the promise of exile in some ways sounds like a good, a good promise. But in many ways, it's not a good promise. Because it's a promise of hard work. It's easy to think when we hear, hear those words from Isaiah that God will simply make everything okay. But that's not what God is saying. God is saying that God will be among them on the return. Isaiah is saying, second Isaiah is saying that God will be among them when they return. But there's no quick fix here. There's an invitation for those in exile to pay attention to what deprives them of hope, to what bleeds them of their resolve to go home, to what holds them fast in their present life, looking sadly back on looking sadly back I've lost my place. Oh, here we go. Looking sadly back on how life had been good in the good old days before the exile. And even how life had been good under the Babylonians. Many of these people weren't slaves per se. They were artisans. They held positions of authority in the Babylonian court. 
they were unable to see any real future going back. So the invasion, the destruction of Babylon by the by the Medes, by the Persians, was not necessarily good things, a good thing, and the, the promise of returning home wasn't necessarily a good thing either. And yet, in this passage, there is an invitation to those people to have a much bigger vision than what they had, to let go of their despair, to let go of what held them static, and to allow them to go home and to engage in that hard work. There was an invitation to a much bigger vision of God in the world, a God who was not defeated, a God who was doing a new thing. And the invitation for us is the same. It's for us to stop and pay attention to what deprives us of hope, to what bleeds us of our resolve, to what holds us fast in the present life, or looking sadly back to how life had been good in the good old days, unable to see any real future. It's an invitation to see a much bigger vision of God in the world, not defeated, but doing a new thing. These words are for us, but they are not a quick fix, but they are words of hope nonetheless. And then our Gospel reading, the story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. There's a lot of people who struggle with this reading. The first thing we can get stuck on is the healing. So there's a lot of people who, well, with divergent views about that, there are a lot of people who think we should do a lot more healing. We should do signs and wonders and then people would come to church and everything would be amazing if we did all of that. Except, well, if you look at all the Pentecostal churches which do all this kind of thing, they too are struggling and they still have lots of sick people in their, in their congregations. They just feel a bit more guilty about being sick because they haven't been healed yet. And then there's all the people who go, oh, I'm not very comfortable with all that healing. I don't understand what all that is about. So then we try to explain it away. And when we do that, we miss the point of what the story is about. So that's the first thing we get wrong. And then the second thing is, well, there's a lot of people who get stuck on Peter's mother-in-law. Interestingly, there are still a lot of people who go, she is the archetypal woman. She gets up and she serves the men, because that's the role of woman. Men get on and do the real ministry, and women serve quietly the scones and tea in the backgrounds. Now, we might be a little bit appalled at that, but there are still a lot of Christian men writers, and probably some women, who still write about that kind of thing. One of the people I read is a woman lecturer at a theological college who was sent an article by a man, a man saying women have no right to be teaching in theological colleges. They are not good mentors for godly men being called to this godly ministry. Women should stay at home and cook the scones. She was a little despondent that that was still being said. And then there's all the people who are outraged at the fact that Jesus seems to be supporting these gender-based roles and doesn't say to Peter's mother-in-law, look, you've been sick, you don't need to come and serve us, you should just sit down up with us and somebody else will do the serving. So there's a whole lot of people who don't like the story for a whole lot of reasons. But all of those reasons, while they're reasonable, 
they kind of divert us from what Mark is trying to do with the story. So in Mark's Gospel, Jesus teaches by doing. He's kind of a Franciscan. Preach the Gospel at all times, use words when necessary. In Mark's Gospel, words weren't so often necessary. Most of the time, Jesus just does. And when he is doing, he is teaching about the Kingdom of God, that it is coming among them now, the long-promised Kingdom of God. But it's not quite what they've expected, as I've said before, as I said last week. The Davidic line is not going to be restored. The Romans are not going to be kicked out. The temple is not going to be completed. The Shekinah of God, the glory of God, is not going to return to the temple. The exile is ending in an entirely different way. So that's the other thing. For Jews, the exile doesn't end when the exile ends. It doesn't end because the Shekinah does not return to the temple. The glory of God is not in the midst of the people. The exile will end when the sins are forgiven, the sins that led to the exile in the first place, and then the glory of God will return and everything will be as it should be. That's what the kingdom of God is about. So, what is Jesus? Te- what is Mark teaching in this gospel with this story? Well, the first is, the whole gospel is that Jesus is the Shekinah who has come back. Jesus is the one who forgives the sins. The sins are the sins of the people that led to the exile. The kingdom of God is now. The sins are forgiven. The kingdom is now. And he shows that by healing people and casting out demons. He defeats the powers of evil. And then those people who are healed, we get get stuck there. We think, oh, these individuals are being healed. Isn't that wonderful? We should heal individuals. And we miss the next point, which is when people are healed, they are restored. They are restored to family. They are restored to community. And that changes everything. So imagine a small town. The word city here, but the Greek is polis, so that does mean city. But really, all of these places are small towns. If you go to Capernaum, it is a small town. It's only a few hundred people. And if you're healing a whole lot of people and casting out demons and all of those people return to their families and all of those people can return to their life in the community, think what that does to that community. It radically changes it. The dynamics of that community are different because of what Jesus has done. That community is forever changed because of what Jesus does. He doesn't heal everyone. He doesn't cast out all the demons. He goes around changing families, changing communities all over Galilee, the bit up the north around where Samaria was. And in doing so, he is showing what the kingdom of God looks like. What about Peter's mother-in-law? Well, Jesus could have said to her, You've been sick, you don't need to heal, you don't need to service, just sit down here. That's one way of understanding the story. But another way of understanding the story is that she acts as the first disciple, the first true disciple. So the, the blokes, they're called Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they truck around behind Jesus. But they don't actually do anything, do they? In terms of what discipleship is, what Jesus shows what discipleship is, and what Jesus teaches about what discipleship is, 
When does he do that the clearest? At the Last Supper when he puts on a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says, I come among you not to be served, but to serve. Who is the first disciple who serves? Peter's mother-in-law is the first disciple who serves. The first one who gets what it's about. Now, this is conjecture. But there is a large group of women who go around with Jesus and support his ministry. All four Gospels talk about that. And they name some of the people. It's pretty reasonable to suggest that one of those women was Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, I think Paul talks about how Peter and his wife were involved in ministry. You'd think that Peter's mother-in-law tucked along as well. Since the people who were looking after in Capernaum are off on the road, she would have gone with them. So she is amongst that group of disciples. So this is a story about... The kingdom of God. And it's also a story about what happens when we are involved, gathered up in the kingdom of God. When we live the way of Christ. It's not just a story about an individual being healed. It's not just a story about women serving while men do the real work. If we think that, we miss the point. It's about the kingdom of God being present and restored and present and present in restored and renewed communities. Communities built on aroha like that shown by Peter's mother-in-law. Mark's point was that the people he was writing to are also restored communities. Just as Capernaum had been. That we too are icons of the kingdom of God happening now. And like those in the exile, there are no quick fixes, much as we'd like a few quick fixes. Like Peter's mother-in-law, we are invited to be disciples and to serve each other and our communities with Aroha. So to finish, I invite you to just pause for a moment and to look at your neighbours and to think, what does it mean to serve these people with Aroha and generosity? What does it mean to serve each other in this place with aroha and generosity? And maybe part of that is helping them pay attention to what deprives them of hope and what bleeds them of their resolve and what sticks them fast in their present life looking sadly back on how life had been in the good old days unable to see any real future. And maybe part of that is receiving that same service of Aroha ourselves and them helping us be unstuck as well. So instead of saying a creed, I invite you to look at each other and contemplate what does it mean to serve each other with Aroha.